Howdy. I'm Eric from Antioch, California. Hey, I'm Kevin from Victor, New York. I'm Luke from Seattle. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. I went through a six-month phase where I only would speak to my parents in the Pee Wee voice. <laughs> this is not a joke. <laughs> That's and not true. I swear. Um, I wouldn't do it at school, but when I got home, I'd be like, Mom, I want breakfast, you know? And there was a period, too, when I would force my mother to answer me in the Pee Wee voice. <laughs> and so my poor, like, middle-aged Jewish mother in Queens would have to be like, I have eggs! I mean, it wasn't pretty. <laughs> that man is Billy Eichner, and today he has his own TV show. And it is great. It's Bullseye. This week, Billy Eichner quizzes bewildered New York pedestrians on the topics that are nearest and dearest to his heart. Britney Spears, Meryl Streep, and Madonna. Meryl Streep is better than Glenn Close! Okay, I agree with you! But first, Nick Kroll talks about his new sketch series, Kroll Show. His characters include a self-conscious basketball ref, a self-centered publicist, and a self-aggrandizing craft services manager. Notice a theme Nick's friend did. He's like... (laughs) A lot of your characters think and express how important they think they are. Plus, writer Brad Talinsky explores the album that kicked off a new era of heavy rock and roll. Basically, their notion was the 60s were going to create the 70s. All this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on the show, our culture critics recommend something worth your time. This week, we're joined by Mark Frauenfelder of Boing Boing and the Geek Podcast, and we are going to talk about card games. Yes, card games. Hey, Mark, how's it going? I'm doing great, Jesse. How are you doing? I am impressed, Mark, that you found a way to make Settlers of Catan more nerdy by advocating a spinoff of Settlers of Catan called Struggle for Catan. Yeah, well, this is a great card game. So, Mark, before we get into it, can you tell us what, essentially, Settlers of Catan, the game that Struggle for Catan, your recommendation is based on, is? Yes, uh, Settlers of Catan is a board game where you collect these resources, and um, you it, it's a map, basically. The board is a map, and so you, you try to build up and enrich your your village with resources and improvements. And by doing that, you, you gain what are called victory points. And the first player to, to collect 10 victory points is the winner. And uh, it's a fun game. The, t- the two problems with it is, uh, one, the games take kind of a long time to play. And we usually play after dinner. We have a nine-year-old, and we end up playing past her bedtime. And the second problem is those pieces are disturbed so easily the game pieces my daughter when she rolls the dice the the pieces just fly all over the place and it is super frustrating so the great thing about the card game is that uh things don't fall out of place it's a similar it's a similar idea that you collect resources to build things like towns and roads and buy knights and uh uh, the fun thing is that you can steal resources from other players, and so there's there's a lot of deal making, and uh, uh, as I've discovered, a lot of betrayal as well. 
Let's talk about your other recommendation, a game called Anomia. Um, this one is a word game. Can you tell me, roughly speaking, how it works? Okay, sure. So you have this 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 very thick deck of cards. There's probably 125 cards. Every card has a a subject on it, like rock opera, cheese, pop song, sea, and then there are. I'm guessing maybe 12 different kinds of symbols on the cards. And so players take turns flipping cards from the deck face up in front of them. And at any time during the game, when two players have the same symbol face up, that is called face-off time. And those players have to quickly shout out an example of the subject. So example for like rock opera, you might say Tommy. And if you were the first one to say that, then you collect the card, and it, it goes in your pile. And uh, whoever has the most uh, face-off victory cards at the end is the winner. It gets to be really fun because um, you're, you're uh, like screaming these words out so quickly, sometimes you don't really have time to think. So you say something that doesn't make sense at all, or you both blurt out the same thing. And uh, it, you, the game gets really loud fast because your brain confuses being first with being the loudest. And uh, it, it's just, a, it, it adds a lot of excitement uh, to an evening, that's for sure. Can you think of anything in particular that was particularly nonsensical that you've shouted out? Uh, I think something like, one of them might have said a brand of dog food, and, and uh, I, I yelled out the name of one of our cats. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's, just, it, it's almost in that territory, you know, <laughs> but not quite. Well, these sound like a lot of fun. Mark Frauenfelder from Boing Boing recommends Struggle for Catan and Anomia. You can find him on the Gweek podcast and at boingboing.net. Hey, just a quick word of warning about this upcoming segment. One of the sketches in Nick Kroll's TV show uses a word that starts with D and means the same thing as a real jerky fella. Later, we also reference intercourse, the lady and gentleman kind. So, sensitive listeners, you've been warned. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Nick Kroll loves the grotesque. In his new sketch show, Kroll Show, he revels in the worst of humanity. His milieu is rich guys swallowing handfuls of pills, reality show stars giving their dogs plastic surgery, and lots and lots and lots of Ed Hardy t-shirts. Sometimes, though, there are glimpses of sweetness, as in the Canadian stars of a Degrassi parody called Wheels Ontario. It's about a Canadian high school where every student is in a wheelchair, except for Kroll. Here's a clip. Remember, today is Victoria Day, so be sure to drop a loony in the Queen's jar for good luck. <laughs> hey, what the? Hey, legs. Thanks for the loony. Pardon, I think you took my milk money. And my name is Mikey. I'm new in school and I... Shush up. If I call you legs... Your name is Legs, Legs. You are les jambes très laides. Pardon me, but you're being very rude. Ouch! My calf muscle, you bashed it. I hate Ontario. I wish I was back in Saskatoon. 
<laughs> welcome, welcome back to the show, Nick. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm grotesquely pleased to be here. <laughs> I think it's funny that you're doing this thing because you did, had a completely not normal high school experience yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, did you? You went to this thing called the Mountain School. Yeah. I was looking at it on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Um, did you go to it as a four-year school? No, it was just – it's one semester of your junior year, and um, it's in a town called Vershire, Vermont. It's 45 kids. You live on a largely self-sustaining uh, or uh, farm. The kids do all the, the farm work. They clean the classrooms. They help in the kitchen. There's a very small, very bright – uh, uh, teaching staff. Um, everybody sits in circles. Everybody calls everybody by their first names. But it's actually not that hippy dippy, if you can believe it. And we read a lot of like we read a lot of Emerson and Thoreau and sort of the romantics, and it's a lot about self reliance. And I, I think for me, uh, the most seminal uh, educational experience of my life. Um, I had went to a, a private school in Westchester County, and it was it was a very good school. Um, but when I went to the mountain school, I met a bunch of kids who were totally at ease being weirdos. When you say that you went to your regular high school was a private school in Westchester, that mm-hmm. that sort of suggests an image for me. Mm-hmm. Um, how what was what was it like? <laughs> I'm just imagining a bunch of dudes with like polo shirts with yeah, popped collars. Basically, and- uh, it was a school called Right Country Day, uh, and uh, um, a very good school, um, but also like where Barbara Bush went when she was, you know, just a burgeoning wasp. I actually want to play a clip from uh, from your show, Kroll Show, and my guest is Nick Kroll on Bullseye. Um, you and uh, writer on the show and regular performer uh, John Daly play these characters called Rich Dicks. Yes. Um, their names are Aspen and Wendy. Yes. Aspen, <laughs> Bruckenheimer, Wendy, Sean. Um, and in this scene, uh, those two guys who are sort of like rich uh, trust fund types um, have gone to Tijuana to uh, score drugs, but they find themselves – uh, kidnapped by a Mexican drug cartel and bound to chairs in a warehouse. Mm-hmm. Oh, just Ow. don't get it. Oh, this is a kidnapping. Oh, what my God. Why did you say that? Okay. No, my dad's got a kidnapping guy. You just call him. The wire the money. We'll take care well, of it. My cousin Bjorn and I have a house in the Hamptons. We could give you, like, October. Wendy, you can't just <laughs> use your timeshare for everything. You don't ever have Well, cash. what's it for, then, if I'm not going to spread it Why around? Why don't you use some cash? Oh! going to try a lot harder get that money can we just go can we just get the drugs drugs <laughs> did did having this did having this experience of growing up in that world make you particularly sensitive to uh blind entitlement oh maybe <laughs> um yeah no i i think it it definitely informed it um you know, and my, I wouldn't say I'm myself as guilty as, as others, but yeah, no, it, it's something that I grew up around and, you know, it wasn't on purpose. And John Daly grew up in Pittsburgh and, and went to a similar kind of school there. And, you know, I don't think either of us at this point act like entitled, but I think we're aware of it and grew up around it. And and I think largely, you know, one of the things that I like about having this as, as part of it is like, you know, I'm going to make fun of everybody, including these guys who are people that I, you know, I ostensibly could have been or or am, and and uh, it's all part of it. You know, every everybody, especially guys like this, are are 
are targets for me. I want to play. Uh, I, I want to play some more clips of your characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is one of my favorite characters of yours, and a very. It's well. I mean, it's a it's a character set in Los Angeles, but I think also a very New York character named Fabrice Fabrice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Fabrice Fabrice actually explains himself in this clip. So, um, I will say only that um, you are. This is a clip from your stand-up special, uh-huh. um, and you are wearing like. A halter top, usually three or four pairs of neon sunglasses in various places on your head, a cropped shirt. Um, can you think of any other elements that I'm missing? Um, it used to be pink uh, snow snow boots, uh, moon boots, and I think for the special it was more rhinestoned out. Um, a thin, like a pencil-thin beard, uh, a number of sunglasses, usually a T-shirt that says something like no <laughs> or hi. Um, and sometimes like a fanny pack like that looks like a banana or something like that (laughs) let's take a listen to my guest Nick Kroll as Fabrice Fabrice oh I have yet to introduce myself my name is Fabrice Fabrice the name's so nice you have to say it again (laughs) I'm the craft services coordinator here at the John Oliver comedy blah 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 Do y'all know what a craft services coordinator is? Okay, I'll explain it, then shut your face. I'm the person that provides all the salty snacks and tiny waters for the actors and writers and producers and Jewish people. I have also done craft services coordination for the television show that is so raven. A, a lot of your characters are really horrible people, and I, one of the things that I like about Fabrice Fabrice is that Fabrice Fabrice, it, while utterly ridiculous, mm-hmm. I mean, completely ridiculous, is really like, and and just as blithe as many of your other characters, just mm-hmm. as sort of inconsiderate. Yeah. Also has a sort of sweetness. There is a sweetness there. I really like Fabrice. Like I, when I see Fabrice, Fabrice, I want to be friends with Fabrice. Fabrice. Oh, that's a high praise. He would not be friends with you. That's true. <laughs> Granted. <laughs> no, he would. Uh, that's very. I mean, that's very kind of you. And and uh, um, something in all the characters that uh, is interesting to me. Uh, um, and and specifically with Fabrice, he, I mean, he's like uh, he's one of the first characters I did. Um, originally or, originated on uh, uh, Aziz Ansari uh, used to do this thing uh, like a trapped in the closet uh, show, and it was when R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet came out, and they would have a bunch of comedians. We would all be in character. This and, was before R. Kelly thought that it was funny, right? Or correct. claimed that he thought it was funny. yes, correct. It was yeah. just a serious hip opera. Yeah. Uh, and we all would uh, be a character somehow involved with the production. We would talk about it. Or we were film theater. It was like a commentary track. Yeah. And so I I had um, I was going out to L.A. The UCB Theater just opened in L.A. And uh, Aziz asked me to do it. And I was like, I didn't know what character to do. And I just had been observing these guys in New York, these sort of like I, I call them Latino. It's not they're maybe black, they're maybe Latin. It's a lot of like kids on Christ- Dominican. Yeah, Dominican kids on Christopher Street who are these like these kids who are 
both like so gay and so tough. Um, and it, they're not mutually exclusive at all. In fact, they're incredibly intertwined and are so funny and so brazen and, you know, just vicious and then sweet. And I just – I was kind of fascinated by them. And so I went out and did the show and the sunglasses thing happened because I was backstage. I was choosing between two different pairs of sunglasses and then I was like, oh, no, I should just wear them both. Um <laughs> And so Fabrice has been like he's a he's somewhat of a not a, fil- a filterless place for me where I can just sort of say the awful things, um, but then also I I'm, he's transitioned a little bit and become a little more sweet as time has gone on and it's partly like I'm less interested in 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 sort of decimating um, celebrities and and um, and people weirdly like he's mean but he's mean about fictitious people or or people who who seem to highlight um themselves as as to me like a hypocritical or to Fabrice as hypocritical um so it's a it's he's he's been around for a while and and we're writing season two of the show right now and, and I have some new ideas to to play with him with he's very complimentary of David Caruso he does like David Caruso <laughs> oh he loves him <laughs> who doesn't <laughs> Probably the people who work for David Caruso. <laughs> Another one of your w- wonderful characters uh, is this character that you do with John Mulaney. Y- you intersected with John Mulaney, who's a stand-up people. If people don't know, he's a very popular stand-up comedian and also a writer on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. um, and occasionally appears on camera on Saturday Night Live. And um, you, the two of you, intersected in college at Georgetown, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I went to Georgetown, and when I was a freshman, uh, Mike Birbiglia was there, and he cast me in the a sketch show he did at the end of freshman year, and, and I did improv with him for the next number of years. And then when I was a senior, uh, John was a freshman, and I cast him in the improv group, and, and we uh, very quickly became uh, friends and, and um, collaborators. And when I moved to New York, he would come and visit and started doing open mics when he came to New York and then and then moved to New York as soon as he graduated. And Hold on. I want to ask you, do do you remember when – do you remember your audition and do you remember when uh, when John Mulaney auditioned for you? I you do. the boss? Yeah. Uh, I remember my audition uh, being told uh, afterwards that um, – I had never done improv or sketch. I didn't know what it was really, but I just was like, oh, this sounds fun. And uh, I, afterwards it was told by uh, that Mike really pushed for me, that other guys in the group uh, who are very good friend of mine, uh, Mike Brian Donovan, who I work with you know, still and, and love, was like, I don't like that guy. <laughs> uh, Mike was like, no, there's something funny in there. Um, and so luckily he, he persisted and got me cast. Um, and John, I remember coming in and auditioning with his friend um and their scene was super funny and i was like god these guys are really funny let's separate them and see how they do with other people and uh his buddy was funny uh, but it didn't have that pop and then john did another scene and it was uh the funniest thing i'd seen and and uh, continues to be the fun i mean that john is the yeah, the I've, amount I've, of funniness inside that man is kind of awe I've now met everybody just about in comedy. I've worked with almost everybody, uh, and there's nobody as funny as John Mulaney. Even Eddie Murphy? I haven't had the opportunity to work with Eddie Murphy. Uh, I can tell you right now, John's funnier than Eddie Murphy. I don't <laughs> know about 1980, 1982 Eddie Murphy, toss-up maybe, but his John's mind is 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 photographic, 
Uh, it is unparalleled and it is sharp. It is original, uh, and it's also um, generous. Um, it's he's just as funny a writer as he is a performer, both as stand up and people don't realize what a funny uh, character actor he is and will be because um, he just hasn't had that as much opportunity. But he, me, and him do oh hello the George Saint Geeglin and Gil Faison. And these two guys are sort of um, uh, – they're like older, middle-aged, Philip Roth reading types, mm-hmm. turtleneck wearing, yeah. um, New York type dudes. Um, I think that's enough. Uh, on on your show, Kroll Show, uh, they are the hosts of a television prank program uh, which is called Too Much Tuna. Yeah. Let's take a listen. Oh, hello. Of course, I'm Gil Faisal. And I'm George St. Geeglin. And this is our prank show, Too Much Tuna. Each week, we prank a guest by giving them too much tuna fish. Today, our guest is my beautiful stepson, Ilan Faisal. Here it comes. Look at this big mountain of tuna fish. Yeah, that's a, a lot of tuna. What's the meaning of this? This is probably too much tuna. I'm, I'm a little confused, actually. What's too so confusing? Is this you, no, no, I get that. This is a lot we of tuna. A, this, a plate was delivered you, with entirely uh, too much tuna fish. You asked me to come uptown to yeah. eat lunch with you. This is like that Ashram Kitchen show pranked. Oh, Wilma Vamarami's Blow Mama. <laughs> Yeah. Don't turn, 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 don't Yes, yeah, so do I. There's one of these. You've been making these videos with Mulaney for quite a while, and there's one of them where you. One of my favorite jokes ever. We may have even talked about this on the show. I like it so much, which is a scale of one to Alan Alda. Yeah, I'll let you. He goes. I can't really. Jesse, on the show so far. How do you think it's going on a scale from one to Alan Alda, one being the worst and Alan Alda being the most perfect man to ever live? <laughs> I'd give it an Elliot Gould, ooh, an 8.3. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Nick Kroll. He's a comedian, writer, and actor known to many for his role on the FX series The League. He's also made a number of appearances on shows like Community, Parks and Recreation, and Children's Hospital. His new sketch series, Kroll Show, is now airing on Comedy Central. You also have a wonderful reality show parody uh, on um, on Kroll Show, which is called Publicity. Yes, um, that you do with Jenny Slate, mm-hmm. uh, who's a very talented, um, crazy talented. Yeah, super super funny. People might know her from Bored to Death. Um, and it, maybe you can tell me where this came from, because this, I think, is a very pure expression of um, your ability to find the worst things <laughs> in the world <laughs> and celebrate them. Um, it, so originally, uh, uh, it started as me and, and my my girlfriend at the time, we would talk like, 
these you know it's a specific kind of girl it doesn't have to be a publicist and um but it's it's this kind of girl woman who's just like oh my god it's amazing like it's just this it's a specific kind of woman that exists right now um and so I came in with the idea to do it on the show, and um, and then uh, we cast Jenny Slate to do it, and we were sort of figuring out, I was like, oh, they should both be named Liz, and it should be a reality show called Publicity. And uh, and I knew Jenny did a similar – she always would have this funny thing and be like, thank you, thank you. Um, and so we cast her to do it, and and then it became – this publicity became sort of the umbrella for – all of the, I mean, not only female, but largely female-driven reality show world of The Real Housewives, The Kardashians. It's actually, there was a show called The Spin Crowd, which was about a couple of girl uh, female publicists. Um, it's and, a lot like, the, the, didn't the Kardashians have a one where they opened a store together? Yeah. And, there's like, and they have like little challenges along the way, and, ex- and they always culminate in events. Yes. It's always, I mean, it's these created, produced events. Um, you got to fill content. You know, I mean, the, the great thing about reality shows now is they're almost more scripted than scripted shows. Um, and so we were, you know, a bunch of the writers and people, whether they admit it or not, watch these kind of shows. And, and they're a huge part of our, our cultural expression right now. And so it felt like fertile ground. Um, and then it's – I don't know if we can get into this, but, I mean, it spins off then. Um, so in the first episode, you meet Dr. Armand, the dog plastic surgeon. <laughs> Jenny takes her dog – to uh, get it red carpet ready. <laughs> Let's take a listen to a clip from publicity. So in this scene, the, the two characters, both named Liz, are introducing themselves. And, and then you'll also hear them having a meeting with a prospective client. Who's Mitch Hurwitz. Yeah, who is trying to raise awareness for canine cancer. Yes. Mitch Hurwitz, the creator of Arrested Development. Yeah. I'm Liz. I'm an amazing person with an amazing life. And I'm Liz. I'm a college graduate and I the best. I'm the driven one. And I'm trying to have a life. Our PR firm is called Publicity. It's based off our name. <laughs> really amazing. Well, it's like funny because it's like we're very different. Right. It's like I live to work. Exactly. And I just want to have an amazing life. Like that's just me and myself. Okay, that's great. Well, you know, it's my point is it's not just people that get cancer. Dogs get it too. Oh my god, I love dogs. And I, I want to raise awareness for that. That's what my charity is for. I hear you two are the best. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's like what we're gonna do is like a big party, like a big splash. Oh my god, I have an amazing idea. Okay. Pirate Girl Rum presents a rock and beach bash to benefit cupcakes for canine cancer. That's cute. Super cute. I'm gonna work hard on locking down some custom cupcakes. <gasps> And my new rescue dog, Brad, can totally walk the red carpet. I found him in the trash. He's gross. Yes, he is. He's disgusting. I just want it to be tasteful. Oh, my God. That's oh my God. so that's cool. Sweet. That's sweet. really nice. cute. That's sweet. There's some... I mean, you really seem to be interested. There's there's these girls. There's uh, a sort of Guido character named Bobby Bottle Service. Mm-hmm. Um, these are... These are just the most grotesque parts of the culture, <laughs> and you've just seized on little pieces of them to make bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's not entirely on purpose, um, but I, I guess I'm not sure how we settle on what we settle on. But I think it's, 
I don't know. I think we all just, you know, you find things that are funny and people who are grotesque to me, I guess, are funny. You know, I, I'm not sure. It's, well, it's, it, can you stomach these things in real life? Like there's plenty of people who who are contemptuous of these things and love them. Mm-hmm. You know, I know lots of people who watch Real Housewives of whatever. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, and then this person did this and this person did this. It was horrible. Yeah. I can stomach them, you know, and but I, I can stomach them in in small. I watch TV in like in like ten minute chunks, so I'll watch like ten minutes of Real Housewives, and then I'll watch like a weird, um, like a you know like a weird uh, Bible uh, infomercial for like holy water, and then I'll change the channel and watch like a weird Mexican. Uh, you know, uh, talk show, and then I'll watch five. You know, I just kind of like I kind of I enjoy various things. Um, so I think. But I, I I think that people people relish in them, and I, but I think the important part is, and it's similar to Real Housewives and all those kinds of shows, is that there are villains in those shows, but there are also people who are kind of awful. But then you start to love them, um, you identify with them, and you and I and I. So as much as I, these all these characters are kind of there, there's something gross about them. Uh, there is an attempt to uh, show some level of humanity with them. Um, because everyone ends up some way because of their family and friends and wherever they come from. And, and, and I'm interested in, in that aspect of it as well, I think. I think those that's the way you stick with a character is if you, for some reason, you have some sympathy for them. Well, there's something about these characters, especially these these more sort of reality show-oriented ones, which is that they have they have grand visions of themselves – but mm-hmm. because their visions of themselves are bigger than the, what they can actually do, they they get knocked down a lot. Yeah. Both on the TV shows and in your parodies. And there's something that you immediately identify with about someone who's trying to do something in a, you know, in a very sincere way and sort of clawing but getting knocked back. Yeah. I think um, John Mulaney note, uh, noted one thing. He's like <laughs> – a lot of your characters think and express how important they think they are, <laughs> um, and I, this it seems that I, I and I, I'd like to vary it because I don't want to keep doing the same kinds of even though they're different things, you know. But I think I find funny people who are um, uh, very unself-aware. They are uh, very confident and at the same time insecure, as I think a lot of us can be. And and they are un, unaware of themselves. Do you ever wish that um, you were less saddled with self awareness? Yeah, yeah, all the time. Uh, I mean, I, I in the end, I'm 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 fine with who I am. I feel very lucky about you know everything that's happened and and happening to me right now. But sure, I mean, there are lo- there. I would love to. I would love to. Yeah, I would love to be less self aware. Because uh, I, I used to have an old joke about how I thought dumb people were better at sex because they just seem free of it. You know what I mean? They just get in there and get to work, you know, <laughs> and there's no sense of like, oh, what's really happening with us? Is there a, is there a relationship here? Are we, you know, like all the things that go with sex and relationships and friendships and work and love and all those things that there are moments where it would be much more fun to sort of blissfully – uh, you know, just sort of waltz through it all. 
And just kind of in, there's something about enjoying your dreams. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm in this crazy moment right now where I have my show coming out. It's come out, and um, and I have the league uh, on FX, which has been going for a while, and people people uh, seem to like. And uh, you know, it's all happening for me in a in a really lovely way, and it's been and it's been great. But it's it's not. But I I'm very tempered by it all. You know, you're just like okay. Well, okay, well, this is happening. We'll see how the ratings are. Okay, there's been a response on Twitter from League fans. They're not pleased with, uh, you know, me trying to be these other characters. Okay, all right, I can process that. And, okay, the ratings have gone down for week two, and that's normal. But, you know, it's, so it's all these things that you, you know, uh, I'll walk out of this interview and be like, all right, I expressed too many things in there, and that's okay because uh, I was feeling probably a little too comfortable because Jesse's very nice and seems very knowledgeable about things. And we're all sentient beings on different levels. And, um, you know, my my default is to express that largely, to not leave too much hidden away. Uh, and it both internally express it and then externally express it. Um, and it's a, you know, it is, we are who we are. It's an artistic soul. Uh, that's right. I'm an art. I'm an artist. <laughs> Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to be on board. And I'm important. Great to have you on the show. <laughs> Just like my characters. <laughs> Nick Kroll is uh, the star of Kroll Show Wednesday nights on Comedy Central. He's also one of the stars of the very funny FX series. The League, which you can catch both on FX and, uh, you know, on your digital versal discs and so forth. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Jesse. After a break, we'll hear about Vikings, Norse gods, and Led Zeppelin with Brad Talinsky. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Allison of The State and the podcast Risk, where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. Risk is the latest addition to the roster of podcasts at Maximum Fun, and it is jam-packed with unforgettable stuff. Your favorite writers, comedians, even fans like you share X-rated stories, outrageously hilarious stories, tear-jerking stories you won't believe. How real and raw and surprising Risk can be. Both radio-style stories and stories told at our live shows, you've heard people say, Ooh, too much information. Don't be sharing that in mixed company. Well, at Risk, we say screw that. Anything goes. So you've got a treasure trove of jaw-dropping entertainment to dig into, my friend. Look us up at MaximumFun.org or Risk-Show.com. Or, of course, just go to podcast at the iTunes store and search for risk. Risk! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. On this week's episode, we debut a new segment. It's called Cannonball, where we take a flying leap into the canon of popular music. <laughs> we talk to experts about classic albums or albums that should be considered classics and figure out what makes them great. This week, Brad Talinsky takes us on a tour of Led Zeppelin III. Led Zeppelin's a band you've probably heard countless times on classic rock radio, but Brad Tolinsky says there's more to them than that, much more. Tolinsky is the editor-in-chief of Guitar World, and he just wrote a book about Zeppelin's guitarist. It's called Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. 
Polinsky says Zeppelin was a huge departure from the dominant musical mode of the 60s. I think they were the first true band of the 70s. While blues recreationists and folky guitar strummers sought to out-authentic each other, Zeppelin wanted to create something new. You know, on previous records, they had sort of presented themselves as a heavy blues rock sort of band. They launched an era of heavy, complex rock music. Their goal, simply, was to sound amazing. Basically, their notion was, the 60s, we're going to create the 70s. In 1970, Zeppelin released their third record, Three. At the very beginning, at the very, very beginning of the record, it's sort of like they're saying, we're going to take a really weird left turn here. We're going to do some strange stuff. It's basically about Vikings, and it would seem completely absurd to hear them sing, you know, things about the hammers of the gods and driving their ships to new lands. But every last bit of it is designed to be thrilling and sort of odd. They were Vikings. They were sort of invading the world. Get used to us. We're going to party and we're going to take your women, basically. That's the idea of this song. If... The Immigrant Song was a reflection of their brash, hard rock persona. Then Friends was the flip side to that. It was how they were going to screw around with folk music. Friends is one of those songs that's one of the greatest synthesis of hard rock mentality along with world music just bashing those opening acoustic chords. I mean, Jimmy had been into world music long before it became fashionable. In fact, uh, he was into Celtic, Indian, and African music, and he called it his CIA connection. He said, you know, we, we did blues music. You know, we did folk music. We did world music. But I always approached everything from a rock and roll head. Uh, and that's his, that's his thing. That's what separates Zeppelin away from everybody else. Is he wasn't trying to be authentic. He was trying to be rock and roll and adding these other cool elements to it. You know, initially, at least the critical community hated it. They, they didn't get it at all because, again, they were looking at this record through a 60s point of view. Uh, where authenticity was important. And uh, Zeppelin was saying, no, we're going to blow all that up. We're going to present something totally crazy, larger than life, and artificial. And, and with that, they set the stage for the 70s. It took a while for the critics to sort of catch up, but kids wearing blue jeans all across America loved it. They were sort of tossing off all the hippie notions of being authentic and uh, charting some new territory. 
Like, for instance, there's a, a blues song on the record, Since I've Been Loving You. It doesn't really sound like a normal blues song. You know, most blues songs are sort of basic three-chord things. And this is almost like an orchestra. It goes through six, seven different chord changes and really has no bearing on what we would all think of as authentic blues playing. And I brought that up to Jimmy. I said, weren't you afraid of getting flack from people who felt that being authentic was important? And he said, no, he, he, he really didn't care. He thought they were being like Muddy Waters when Muddy Waters was going from acoustic to electric, reinventing the thing. You know, a lot of the music of the 60s were about the lyrics and the deep ideas. Zeppelin's not really about the deep ideas. It's a sound, really. That's what's exciting about it. The thing is that they were, they were completely successful at it. I, I still think the reason that Led Zeppelin confuses people is because the lyrics sometimes are patently ridiculous, and rock critics just tend to focus on lyrical content. And I think that that's why Robert Plant is always like a little embarrassed about Led Zeppelin because maybe that's the weakest link, you know. And then again, it could be that we're just all under the spell of uh, Jimmy Page and his black magic. <laughs> A lot of people somehow feel a little ashamed for liking Led Zeppelin because, you know, it's classic rock. It's sort of old. Everybody likes Led Zeppelin. How can it possibly be cool? But nobody ever asked that question about Miles Davis. Nobody asked that question about Muddy Waters, you know, or even the Beatles, for that matter, or the Stones, you know. I think Led Zeppelin had this incredible depth. All four members were virtuosos. They were doing really experimental, weird things. And it's only on repeated listenings that you can sort of grasp it all and understand it all. And I think it's sort of captured a weird zeitgeist, too. You listen to Bronyar Stomp, and it really does sound like Mumford & Sons. You know, maybe it's time has come. So it's held up over a long, long period of time and different generations have understood it in a thousand different ways. Brad Talinsky on 1970s Led Zeppelin III. Talinsky's recent book is called Light and Shade, Conversations with Jimmy Page. Stick around. We'll have Billy Eichner after a break. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. And a
Have a favorite bullseye segment? It's easy to share it with your friends. You can find links to our page on SoundCloud at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Billy Eichner, hosts one of my favorite shows on TV, Billy on the Street. Here's what happens on the show. Eichner goes out on the streets of New York City and asks pop culture quiz questions of random passers-by. If they get them right, they win money. Only it's maybe not the show you're imagining because of the manic, petulant, Madonna-obsessed man who's sitting across from me right now. Let's take a listen to a little bit of the show. Billy is quizzing passersby, again, on a New York street, offering them a dollar if they answer his question. Who's better, Meryl Streep or Glenn Close? Glenn Close, Bob. What? No, that is not the truth. Meryl Streep is old. First of all, her name is Meryl Streep, not Meryl Streep, but she's a porn star. I don't care. Meryl Streep is old. She's done. No, it's Meryl Streep is better than Glenn Close. Okay, I agree with you. Um, Billy Eichner, welcome to the show. Hi, I love that clip. That man is an amazing man. He is he is um, very carefully turned out. Yes. Also missing teeth. Missing a few teeth. Yeah. And he continues the segment after you have left the frame. That's right. For minutes. Absolutely. Like, I, I walk away, and this semi-toothless man. He may or may not be homeless. I don't know if he is, so I don't want to... He's very sharp, though. I he's, mean, for a he's, homeless guy, he's got he's his act together. He's very sharp, um, and he has some very passionate opinions about Meryl Streep, even though he says streak, <laughs> uh, and Glenn Close. He really loves Glenn Close. He must watch Damages. I don't know how, but I he li- does it. I like that he's a big fan of you, too. He, he, he is emphatic about making the point it's incredible. that you're his man. That's one of my favorite clips of all time, and I haven't heard it in a while, so that was fun. I um I wrote we have this thing called the outshot on the show where I like recommend something. And I wrote one about your show because oh, as I said you. in the introduction, I think it's totally great. Thank you very much. And one of the things that I said was that your character on the show, um, I mean, we've only interacted for about five minutes, but mm-hmm. you're not like that in real life. No. Um, that would be real exhausting. That would be a terrifying life to lead. <laughs> Reminds me a lot of Pee Wee Herman. That's right. In that it is very, um, it is very childlike and petulant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, for sure, for sure. And uh, you're not the first person to make the peewee comparison, and it is like a huge honor for me to, for someone to make that comparison because – and I never thought about peewee while I was – you know, started making these videos and doing the show. But when people bring it up, I think, yes, of course, because when I was a kid, I was completely obsessed with peewee Herman for a period of time. I religiously watched peewee's Playhouse – I would get up Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. I mean, I would wake up way before 11 a.m. because I was like seven. And I I loved him so much. I loved the world he created on that show. I loved Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I loved Big Top Pee-wee, the movies he did with Tim Burton. And there was a phase where I went through a six-month phase where I only would speak to my parents in the Pee-wee voice. (laughs) This is not a joke. That's not true. I swear. Um, I wouldn't do it at school, but when I got home, I'd be like, Marlon breakfast, you know, and I had some Mr. T cereal. Exactly. Um, uh, Let's not keep doing that voice. But um, uh, my and there was a period, too, when I 
would force my mother to answer me in the peewee voice. <laughs> and so my poor, like, middle-aged Jewish mother in Queens would have to be like, I have eggs! <laughs> I mean, it wasn't pretty, but I swear that's the case. And I just I just love peewee so much. And so when people mention to me now that something about what I do on Billy on the Street is similar to Pee Wee Herman. I'm just like floored by it. I think that's the highest compliment. One of the things about Pee Wee Herman as a character that is, um, you know, driven by his childlikeness. I mean, it's never it, – Pee Wee is sort of – doesn't have an age exactly. Right. Uh, maybe in some of the early things he does on Letterman and stuff like that, there's a right. specific age. But generally, he's not of an age. That's correct, yeah. But one of the things that he does – that is like a child is invest enormous stakes into very stupid, silly yes. matters. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and in some ways, that. that's sort of the premise of Billy on the Street. In a way, I mean, I'm, I'm a very pop... I mean, it, it's, a, it's a character for sure, even though I use my real name. But it, it is rooted in parts of my personality, obviously. Like, since I was a kid, since I was like that Pee Wee Herman-obsessed child... I was not just Pee-wee obsessed. I was completely obsessed by pop culture and the entertainment industry. And this is before the internet. So, you know, I, my father and I would read page six together, like the gossip column in the New York Post when I was like six years old. Like instead of nursery rhymes, like I was reading about, you know, celebrities. So what I'm doing on Billy on the Street, although it's 20 years later, is um, really taking that to like the – 10th power like it's a very exaggerate exaggerated version of my id in a, in a way you know or, or what my id was as a kid and i just said it is a kid but um yeah I, I i i enjoy it i think it's it's so silly it's so absurd like when people say the show is absurd i think i take that as like a compliment a huge compliment because you know that's the kind of comedy i like you know it's peewee it's when i, I grew up Watching Martin Short, love Martin Short, you know, um, on SNL, and that's just, you know, I don't know. I sort of, not to say I'm as good as those people, I'm not, but I, I come out of that tradition. I'm inspired by those people, and so, yeah. I want to play another clip of you performing. This is actually a clip from the Conan O'Brien show, uh, which is called Conan. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is you've done a series of Madonna related man on the street videos of for course, them. Of course I have. Um there's one where um there's one where you go to see Madonna at the Super Bowl. There's one where you go to see her at Yankee Stadium. Um yes. there's and one where you go see her in Tel Aviv. Yes. Well the order is Conan uh and the people at Conan have been incredibly generous to me and so supportive. They had an idea. You know, they saw my videos. They saw Billy on the Street, and they sent me – I did his show just as a regular guest, um, and I showed clips from my show, sort of typical talk show appearance. And then they called the next day, and they said, do you want to go to the Super Bowl? We have great access at the Super Bowl. Do you want to go cover it for us? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, I can turn that down, but I didn't know what my angle would be because I don't give a about football. <laughs> um, and yet it is a big kind of pop culture event. Like, it goes beyond football, and it turned out – that of all the years for me to be asked to go to the Super Bowl, Madonna was the halftime show this year. And I was a huge, still am, like, you know, unabashed, unashamed, huge Madonna fan. But especially as a kid, you know, as a gay kid growing up in the 80s, hello, you know, she was it. And um, she still is it to me um, and to many people. 
but it turned out Madonna was the halftime show. And so we thought like, oh, here's the idea that I would go to Indianapolis to like the middle of the country where the Super Bowl is happening and I would only care about Madonna at the Super Bowl, that I wouldn't care about the Super Bowl at all. And I'd go up to people who have traveled all over to come to the big game and ask them about Madonna. And when they didn't care, which many times they did not, I got really angry. Sir, are you excited about Madonna? Madonna? Yeah. No, absolutely not. Why? She's the halftime show. And then the amazing thing is that Conan's show somehow got me on the field at the Super Bowl. So I'm on the field. I saw Madonna's show from the 50-yard line. And then right after the game, I ran up to the players, like, on the field after the Giants had just won and asked the players, you know, I didn't ask them about the game. I said, how did you like the Madonna show? The Madonna show? Um, and they obviously were like, what the They're just hell baffled. is this They're like, kid yeah, talking we were, about? We were doing strategy in the club. Yeah, they were like, no, I was in the locker room. Congratulations. Man, appreciate it, man. It's, you guys played an amazing game. It's something that was hard fought for, man. You know, we knew that it wasn't going to be easy. Yeah, congratulations. Did you guys see Madonna? Um, so this is a clip from uh, the third in your Madonna video trilogy. This one's at Yankee Stadium. Yeah. So so what happened was uh, then after the Super Bowl, Conan sent me to Israel to cover the opening night of Madonna's World Tour, um, telling me he was sending me to cover me to cover the nuclear crisis between Iran and Israel. But I only cared about Madonna. And then finally, Madonna came to New York to do her tour at Yankee Stadium, and again somehow I got access and. Uh, I was allowed to ambush Madonna on stage at Yankee Stadium while she was rehearsing. Uh, let's let's take a listen. Hi, Madonna. What are you doing here? This is amazing. What is this? this is not- Hi, Rocco. Hi, Rocco. Get him. Did you tell? Rocco loves me. Rocco never met you. What? You're a weirdo. No, I'm great. No, you're not great. No, I'm great. Are you doing holiday tonight? We're not doing holiday. Oh, no, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. What? What? We're not doing both. No! No! Hey, it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Billy Eichner, is the host of Billy on the Street on Fuse. Uh, This game is called Dead or Boring. Um, And you you just, I mean, this is just like a young lady who looks like she goes to fashion school and has a giant blonde afro. Yeah. What is your name, Mitt? Pauline. Pauline, what do you do in New York? About to drink with <laughs> my best friend. You just get drunk? Yeah. No, come on. You have to do something else. Shop. Take- All right. Drinking and shopping. Well, you look like the cowardly lion, and I like it. Thank you. Okay, here we go. We're going to play dead or boring. I'm going to rattle off a list of celebrity names, and you have to tell me whether that person is dead or boring. If they're dead, you say... Dead. If they're boring, you say... Boring. Correct, Pauline. Okay, if you get seven right in 30 seconds, you win a big prize. Okay. Ready to play? Yeah. Yeah, Okay, here we go. Put 30 seconds on the clock, please. Ready to play dead or boring? Yes. Here we go, Pauline. Dead or boring. And away we... Go. Elvis Presley. Dead. Yes, correct. Buddy Holly. But boring. No, dead. Taylor Laudner. Dead. No, boring. Taylor Laudner. Come on. Audrey Hepburn. Boring. No, dead. Randy Jackson. Boring. Yes, correct. James Brown. Dead. Yes, correct. Lauren Conrad. Boring. Yes, correct. Jessica Tandy. Dead. Yes, correct. Heidi Montag. Boring. Yes, correct. Tupac Shakur. Dead. Yes, Tiny Tim Winner. Yes, you win, Pauline. Congratulations. (laughs) 
Yes, Pauline, here's your prize. Oh my God, it's paper! It's paper, yes, Pauline! Yeah, blank paper was her prize. (laughs) (laughs) She was great, she was fun. The the contestants, the people I approach on the street, I mean, I do my thing and hopefully people like it, but really, it's about these New Yorkers. This is real New York. The contestants themselves, we literally, we decide what neighborhood we're going to, we turn the cameras on, the sound guy turns the mics on, the PAs are behind me, and I start walking. I don't know who I'm going to approach until a second before I approach them, whether it's to ambush someone and, and scare them or, you know, with a lightning round question or a longer 10-minute game. We don't know what's going to happen. And so you're not getting a glossy Sex in the City New York as much as I love that New York. But I grew up in New York, and these are my people, you know? Like, I love New York a lot. The person I imagine when I watch you on television is the person who, after one of these interactions, has to go up to that person and get them to sign a consent form to oh. appear on oh, television. Oh, yeah, that's going to be the spinoff show, those conversations. <laughs> I get to keep walking because i got to keep shooting the show. But what happens is after I have an, you know, uh, an interaction with someone, whether it's for literally a second or... 20 minutes and you never know what it's going to be um a, a pa one of our wonderful relentless pa pas have to go up to that person and usually the person's like what the f just happened who was that what happened to me and then they have to we have to get a signature from that person in order to be able to use that clip on tv without blurring their face and we don't want to blur faces because that's that would be irritating to watch um yeah, it's a process. <laughs> have, have you done things that are 20 minutes where you were like, oh, freaking nailed it, and the person changes their mind at the end and doesn't want to be on TV? Eh, usually when they stick around with me for that long. Remember, this is not a hidden camera show. You know, people who are like, oh, how can you do that to people? Are you kidding? Do you see what else is on television that are hidden camera prank shows? There are two cameras in your face and a boom over your head and me, a very loud, tall gay man with a mic in your face. You know what's happening. You know this could possibly be seen somewhere. So if they stick around for 20 minutes, it's because they're they're cool with it. So it's rare that we'll lose something like the longer games, like the quiz in the face segment, which usually goes on anywhere between like three to nine minutes, depending on how far they make it in the game. Um, they almost always sign the release. Plus, they win money sometimes, and you don't get the money unless you sign the release. Um, it's those, it's the lightning round, you know, when I really ambush people and they're not looking at me and I come up behind it, I'm like, Juliana Margulies! And then literally I run away after saying just that. And then someone comes up to them and is like, Miss, do you mind signing this release so that appears on national television? Almost always the people that appear on the show are, you know, bare minimum uh, amused and confused and often really enjoying themselves talking to you. Um, there's this, there is one woman from the new season of the show. Her, her name is Elena, uh, who I really loved. Uh, I'm in love with her. So let's take a listen to Elena. You, you recorded with her. The segment is, you know, t- 10 minutes long, mm-hmm. five, 10 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And the whole time she is physically leaving. She's attempting to get on the subway, but continuing to play the game. Yeah. Both of them at the same time. Let's yeah. take a listen. Miss, Miss, you want to get quizzed in the face? You can win money right now on the street. What's your name? Elena. Oh, Elena, I'm Billy. Nice to meet you. Glad to meet you. 
What's happening? I'm going out. That's okay. It'll be really quick. Okay, here's how it's going to work. If you get two... <laughs> what? Obama. I didn't ask about that. Okay, if you get two questions wrong, you're out. If you need help answering a question, we can beg a stranger twice. You can compliment my hands. Do you understand? No. Perfect. Here we go, Elena. <laughs> Round one, question one. According to Beyonce's song, Run the World, who runs this mother? A, girls. B, bears. C, Lorne Michaels. D, Freemasons. Girls. Are you sure, Elena? Yes. Yes, correct, Elena. Yes, correct. You're on to question two. Here we go. Okay. What? Nothing. Jeez. <laughs> Question two. Who did Sinead O'Connor tear up a photo of on Saturday Night Live in the 90s while saying, quote, fight the real enemy? A, the Pope. B, the President. C, Casey Wilson. D, those people in the sample picture when you buy a frame. What? The Pope. Yes, correct, Elena. Yes. Boy, you would know it all. Thousand million dollars. No, you don't get anything yet. Okay. Oh, okay, great. On to question three. What are you worried about? I have to meet someone. I have things to do, too. I have TV shows I like to watch. You don't have to take the subway. Excuse me? You don't have to take the subway. I take the subway all the time. I have a metro card and everything. I was born in Queens. <laughs> oh, I love her to death. <laughs> She's such a wonderful woman. Uh, you have to, people, you really, that clip really sells itself when you see her facial expressions. I mean, it sounds funny too, but you got to go, if you go on BillyOnTheStreet.com, we have the Elena clip and she's just priceless. She stays with you. The whole time. It's a very strange thing. What Until the, the very end. And then she, then she storms off. What, what, is it, uh, what is it that you wanted to tell me about her? You said there was something oh, you wanted to tell me about Oh, this is great. So, uh, you know, usually in order to see the full episodes, you have to watch them on Fuse, Friday nights, 10 o'clock, 9 central. Uh, or you can buy them on iTunes. But we'll always release one or two segments from each week's episode online, you know, on BillyOnTheStreet.com or on YouTube or whatever. So, uh, and you can like Facebook me and follow me on Twitter and I always post those things. Um, however, we well, so, so anyway, so we posted the Elena clip, her full clip online because she was so great. And someone, one of the Billy on the Street fans, writes on my Facebook wall, Elena lives in my building. Some guy recognized her, some gay man in Chelsea in New York where we filmed it. Probably, I don't know if he's gay, I'm just assuming. Um, <laughs> recognized Elena and I thought, oh, that's very funny. A week later, he writes on my Facebook wall again, and he says – I forget his name. Otherwise, I would give him a, a shout-out because I love that he wrote to me. Um, he says uh, – he saw Elena in the building, asked her if she was aware of this being out there because, of course, we filmed this months ago, and now it's finally out on television. And Elena said she's been getting recognized in the subway, <laughs> and she doesn't know why. <laughs> she doesn't fully remember shooting it. She kind of remembers. She doesn't know what it was. She doesn't know what it's on. And I just love the fact that she is getting recognized in New York. That really makes me happy. In assaulting all these people, um, have you ever been in a position where you felt f physically uncomfortable, as in concerned about your safety? Not really. Um, one of the I once went up to an old lady who slapped me across the face really hard, but I thought that was hilarious. I, good for her. She should. <laughs> um, you know, I've so far I haven't really been like attacked or anything. Again, it's not a hidden camera show. Um, sometimes there'll be some like gruff dude who like you know will get pissed off that we put cameras in his face. You know, like Sean Penn without the Oscars, basically. <laughs> you know, um, and. They tend to get more annoyed at the cameramen than me. Um, you know, you don't touch the talent, Jesse. Even they know that. But uh, they really, you know, they don't like the camera in their face. So they might, like, 
you know, put their hand up or something. But no one's threatened. No one's really – I haven't had any, like, physical altercations with anyone. Um, well, except for the woman who hit you. Except for the one old lady who slapped me across the face. But I like that. <laughs> Many of the questions on the show are subjective questions. Um, I mean, you're not afraid to really berate someone who disagrees with you on even subjects that aren't related to Meryl Streep and Glenn Close. That mostly, but yeah. often other things Sometimes. as well. Um, and that got me wondering about game show laws. Yeah, we are officially a game show. Um, it like in the movie Quiz Show, yeah, right? Where yeah, there's sure. there's a bunch of laws from the 50s about right. what you can and can't do on a game we show. We are a game show. It is a real game show. We follow game show laws. Um, and there are certain things we had to figure out in order to be able to do that and do what I want to do on the show. Which what is, is Give me an example. It's very complicated, to be honest, and I don't really understand. It was a lawyer. You're no game show lawyer. Oh, yeah, exactly. Well, there are. There are game show compliance lawyers, um, and we have those. Um, and we, but we figured it out. I mean, put it to put it very simply, for the subjective questions, uh, I just have to have my answer written down beforehand. I can't just make it up on the spot or tell someone they're wrong just arbitrarily. Um, and as long as we do that, we're following game show laws. So as long as on the note card that you're holding, it says that Beyonce is better than Rihanna. Right. Exactly. Then, then, then I can walk away from someone who doesn't agree with me and they lose and that's okay. (laughs) Well, Billy, I, I love your show. I couldn't love it more. Oh, thank you very, very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I loved it. Billy Eichner is the host of Billy on the Street, which airs Friday nights on the Fuse Network. Every week on the show, we close with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. How do you make music that's simultaneously peaceful and churning? How can you make something percussive without percussion? How do you evoke longing and passion without changing the tone of your vocal more than, I don't know, a quarter of a step? Frankly, I don't know. I I can hear it, but I can't even quite describe it or understand it. There is one man, though, who can answer all of those questions. João Gilberto. In 1957, Miles Davis was midwife to the birth of Cool. In the early 1960s, João Gilberto made it perfect. Have you ever seen an artist who works by subtraction? 
somebody who can remove every unnecessary element, maybe even imply a few necessary ones, and with just a couple of lines evoke a whole world. That's what João Gilberto did. He took samba, thick, propulsive dance music, driven by a complex African drum patterns, and then he basically took out the drums. Eu nasci com o samba, no samba me criei. E tu danado do samba, nunca me separei. O samba da minha terra deixa a gente morre. Quando se canta, todo mundo pode. Everywhere where there was hot, he made it cool. But somehow he didn't lose the beat. It was called Bossa Nova, the new thing. I've been listening to a lot of Gilberto's self-titled album from 1961. It's often just Zhao and his guitar, sometimes with an assist from the soft ticking of a jazz kit or the gentle sound of a shaker. The rhythm doesn't come from a long line of congas and bongos and claves. It comes from a moment's hesitation or a bent inflection. It's exceptionally beautiful, very quiet, sort of yelling. That's my outshot. Quando se canta todo mundo pode. Quando se canta todo mundo pode. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Look for us on Facebook, Twitter, and SoundCloud, where you can share your favorite segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.